0: for huge swathes of the media landscape you know searches is is what drives people to you and you are sort of in a way beholden to the whims of the algorithm
1: welcome back to media voices everybody we're the media focus podcast that takes a look at all the news and the views from the media world over the past week i'm chris utcliffe
2: I'm Esther Thorpe
3: and I'm Peter Houston and this week I spoke to James Stables who publishes Wearable.com and The Ambient, the recommendation sites for wearables and smart home technology. James was incredibly honest in our chat uh, about the ups and downs, the rise and fall and rise again of his SEO driven affiliate revenue based business.
1: Well, that's going to be a really interesting one to listen to. But before then, we do actually have something to settle, because the two of you over the past week have been in a grudge match, an extended discussion about one particular survey which indicates that young people are more likely to pay for news. So, ladies and gentlemen, in the (laughs) red corner, we have Esther Keziah Thorpe, the optimistic ingenue of the media world, And in the blue corner, we have Peter Houston, the cynical Scotsman himself. So...
2: Does that make you a Tory?
1: It does. (laughs) (laughs) So, (laughs) getting in his head already, I love it. Yeah. So, to begin with, a survey conducted by Elizabeth Benitez as part of her degree research has found that while young readers are still the least willing to pay for digital news subscriptions, they do recognize the value add. So, this isn't an official survey conducted by Winifra, although that is where we're taking this information from. And uh, Elizabeth looked at 355 participants aged between 18 and 35 from Europe, the US, and Mexico. And her research concluded that young readers are willing to pay up to 6 euros for a monthly digital news subscription. And willingness to pay is, I suppose, it's primed to increase. So, Peter, to begin with, why were you so... Uh, what's the word for this? Skeptical about the about these results?
3: Well, because... sceptical
2: about everything.
3: <laughs> yeah, you know, it's kind of my job, to be honest. But what I just thought was wrong in this was the conclusion that... I don't know the conclusion, that's maybe the wrong word. The assumption that these people were telling the truth. <laughs> 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 that, because the, the, one of the questions was, well... Well, oh, what are they are. Let me start that again. So one of the things was well, we don't pay for news right because we're skint. We're young people and we're skint, which is fair enough. A lot of young people are having a tough time all of it. So I get that they don't want to pay for news because they don't have a disposable income. But the question was, well, if you had more disposable income, would you pay for news? And they all went, "Yeah, yeah, of course we would.
1: <laughs> right?
3: Okay. And that's just nonsense. You can't base <laughs> anything on that. People, what? That's like, do you like kittens? Yeah, but no, well, I couldn't eat a whole one. I don't know. It's just.
1: So you're saying it's based on the idea that, yeah, it's basically saying, well, if you had the funds to do this, would you do it? And it's kind of meaningless, right? So you think the question effectively is, would you like more disposable income?
3: <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, that's a whole other way of looking at it, and yes, that's the point.
1: <laughs> okay, and in the red corner, Esther. You were a lot more optimistic about this. You pushed to include it in the newsletter and you think that a lot of the findings are uh, sort of rock solid. So what about it makes you optimistic?
2: Well, yeah, I took the opportunity to uh, have it as the lead story on my newsletter, Mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. meant neither of you could argue with it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, so I think, uh, if we just have a quick look at the numbers here, I think it was 23.4% have said that they're ready to pay for a subscription. I'm skeptical about that group of people. Um, 27% wouldn't ever get a subscription, great. I think they're probably being honest. And the rest have this kind of like neutral opinion. It's just interesting the number that have cited that it's income levels that are the barrier there. And I think with, there's so much research that comes out that's like, you know, millennials don't pay for stuff, Generation Z don't pay for stuff. You know, I think we've ruined the diamond industry because we're not buying oh, diamonds. Oh, God.
1: Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, diamond mine owners.
2: Wow!
3: Oh, I was lucky that Elon Musk got in oh. there under the wire before that fell apart. It was emeralds.
2: <laughs> Um, and I just think that there there's this huge kind of lack of willingness to to recognize that actually people that are <laughs> under thirty five are under a lot of financial pressure. And you know people sort of cite, well, you know, yeah, but they've got Netflix, they've got their mobile phone contracts. Well, yeah those are <laughs> those are kind of, those are essential entertainment or, <laughs> entertainment or <laughs> life items. And I think people still see news as a as a, a kind of luxury and additional extra that they will get when they have the additional income.
3: You said that like it's just
2: Netflix.
1: Well, go on. What, what do you mean, Peter?
3: Netflix, Disney+, Plus,
1: Spotify. Oh, God, awesome. Well, I, okay, but again, these are...
2: Essential entertainment bundles.
3: <laughs> well, those Once two again... words actually don't sit together particularly well. Essential and entertainment. But giving you that... Oh, come on.
2: Okay, actually, actually, right. Rather than essential, let me let me put it another way: is that if I want to watch um, Marvel or I want to watch something on Netflix, I cannot get that anywhere else. Whereas news is freely available everywhere. So if I choose to pay for a quality subscription, there's not that kind of there's not that restricted access necessity in the same way. Right? This is the so worst would...
3: debate ever because you're proving <laughs> my
1: point. Go on, how so? I think Esther's making a really good point. Yeah, her point
3: is that the people will pay for other stuff before they'll pay for news.
2: But when they can afford to, they will then choose a quality news source and pay for that as a luxury rather than as a, as a necessity.
1: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I mean, I think we're, just to get this out of the way, this is this is not a fault of young people. This is not like we're a horde of, I say we, although I'm just about to age out of this demographic. Uh, we're not a horde of locusts descending on the news industry to just like pick it clean and leave it just like bones on the ground.
2: I mean, maybe maybe if we bought less avocado on
1: toast, we'd we'll be able to afford. A new I mean, I, I can't be blamed for that because I hate avocado. But the,
3: <laughs> my my it, actual point in this is not a, an age point.
1: You're talking about the,
3: specifically. My point is, you know, if you look at the peak of newspaper circulations, <laughs> if half of people didn't buy a newspaper. Mm. So it's 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 not under, it's not looking seriously enough at that number that fifty percent of people are saying we would pay for news if we had more money. No, you
2: wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, I, I I do think like fifty percent is is wildly wildly optimistic.
3: I think at the, at the peak of newspaper circulations in the US, I actually looked this up. This is how sad this got. <laughs> It was like 60 million people bought a newspaper in the, in the US in the, in the early 80s. And as a percentage of population, that's about 25%. Um, and, and it's only gone down since then. So to think that 50% of young people or any people are going to pay for a news subscription is bonkers.
1: I, I completely agree with that. I think that really, this what the survey proves is that it's something that people are primed to do now. It's not saying that they definitely will. It's that, it's them saying that should they see a good enough value proposition, they would consider it. I
2: think.
1: I need. We need more of it, definitely. Mm.
2: Mm. There, I thought there was another really interesting thing that came out of this survey. Then that was the price people were willing to pay. Um, and that that is where I think that there are going to be issues in the next couple of years, because um, the research concluded that young readers would pay up to six euros for a monthly digital news subscription, which is actually less than 50 percent of the average price, yeah. which is 14 euros. And I think this is one of those things that actually d- does the industry need to look at price points? Because if, if you've got your Netflix, you've got your Spotify, you've got Disney Plus, whatever else, they're between, what is it, five, five pound and nine pound a month. And you're then looking at a publisher that's asking you to pay fourteen pounds a month for news content that you can get elsewhere, and I, th- I think that there's a lot of questions around the value proposition there. I can yeah, remember absolutely. hearing the, the the Atlantic talked about this when they were talking about their price point because they've gone with the four ninety nine Netflix price point or sixty pounds a year, and that's then a much more kind of you know you're not competing with endless films, endless TV shows, endless video watching. You're saying yeah, we we we're not it sounds horrible we're not quite that valuable but we're not going to ask you to pay the same price point for that for, for news content
1: It's that distinction between what's important and what's valuable, if you see what I mean like there's the, People People recognise that there is this inherent importance to news content that it does help hold power to account but at the same time the value proposition skews much more heavily towards entertainment, particularly when people are talking about WandaVision Yes, so there's
2: absolutely.
3: A... <laughs> absolutely I actually had to look up WandaVision, I had to are Google you- it well, okay. Go I got so to... I got so confused by people talking about it on Twitter that I thought I need to find out what this is about. Well,
1: Chris. I, I, th- I really, think you, really you were
2: crying Friday night as well, right?
1: I wasn't. I wasn't crying. I but was. I was like, <laughs> it has really made me come to appreciate uh, Paul Bettany as an actor and Vision as a character. Anyway, we're getting off topic slightly here, but um, I think yeah, that price point discussion is the really key takeaway on this, and it's something where we're all sort of aligned. This idea that. Effectively, newspapers, by I suppose dint of their own sort of self importance, have priced themselves out of a lot of these young people's price ranges.
2: Yeah, I mean, so like some of the ones in the US, like Washington Post is what is it, like $30 a month or something ridiculous?
1: And there's, you know, we there are a lot of, you know, student subscriptions out there, but that doesn't, I said that so dismissively and I don't know why, student submission, but there's this idea that there is no, uh, consideration to the fact that some people just simply cannot afford that compared to you know, some of their competitors is astounding to me that we're still at this stage of the discussions.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, it's slightly depressingly, a, a, a large proportion of them said that um, less than €3 Euros would be a fair price point for news, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is a little bit brutal. <laughs> well,
1: I mean, in that sense, that's on the newspapers. That's on our industry for not communicating our value enough.
3: There's £3 pound a week, maybe. three euros a week and that actually gets you back to where it's meant to be right
2: (laughs) so the the survey actually um it did actually ask people in terms because you know news isn't just one big um lump uh it said said they said to them right what type of news would would you be willing to pay for and science and technology came out really really high Mm. but there was really low willingness for crime and national politics and i i very much get that
3: i think that's that's where someone like the economist and, and the work that The Economist has done in social media to bring, you know, that idea that they've got cu- this, they're trying to target this curious generation. And it's a, been a real brand building exercise for them. That I think is what a lot of newspapers and news publishers have to do. You know, I, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not blaming young people here. You, you always try and turn this into the avocado argument. I'm not complaining about that. <laughs> I like avocados as much as anyone. Me. I I think that part of the issue is this: the generation that we're describing here hasn't ever had to pay for this stuff. And that's what's changing now. So you can't really blame people who have never had to pay for something for kind of wondering why all of us have never got to pay for it. There's, got, there's an education that needs doing there.
2: Well, actually, it was interesting you mentioned The Economist there because, Chris, I think you spoke to Tom Sanders before Christmas and he was saying that their whole approach to this was it's not they don't go after the breaking news. They go with the we're going to take three days to analyse what this means, write it up and kind of explain and and add that value there. So you go to The Economist for what it means to you, not just what's happened.
3: (laughs) Who Um, won? uh, <laughs> obviously, obviously a, I won. It, I just wanted to know what the point was. No, it
1: was, a te- it was a technical knockout and the loser was the news industry.
3: And now for the news in brief, lots of new launches. But first, the new scientist has been sold to the Daily Mail publisher, DNGT, for £70 million. <laughs> I have to confess to a certain cognitive dissonance in seeing this. Thinking of uh, the Daily Mail owning one of the leading or the Daily Mail and the one of the leading science magazines in the world being in the same stable, kind of confused me.
1: I saw so many people have that exact response and almost a sense of dismay that New Scientist has suddenly joined DMGT.
3: Yeah, I think that's misplaced. Um, DMGT, I think. Well, they promised that they won't mess with the staffing, they won't uh, mess with the editorial independence. It hopefully just means that New Scientist has got more money to do really great stuff.
1: Well I was gonna say New Scientist part of the reason why this they, they made the purchase is that New Scientist is actually doing really, really well. I think DMGT would be mad to mess with what they're doing there. Uh the the only thing is And
3: again, look at what China's doing in Hong Kong.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what a what a segue. That was quite a segue. Uh, Moving on, Men's Lifestyle publication Mel is launching uh, three paid newsletters in the hopes of accruing 10,000 subscribers in the first six months. The first newsletter to launch is going to be Melanie, targeting the site's 40% female readership. Uh, Interesting to see just quite how in the industry is going on newsletters, you'd you'd be hard pressed to find anybody who wasn't at least dabbling with it now.
2: I'm just quite impressed that they're launching three at the same time.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I suppose that they must have had internal discussions about whether they would you know, cannibalise each other's launch.
3: I think that the female newsletter, or the newsletter for female readers, not female newsletter, what would that look like? <laughs> um, the newsletter for female readers is really, really a clever way of targeting that, the, the female readership in a, in a very specific way. I think that's such a smart
2: move. I'm really sad because I've realized it's far too late to make a joke about a new scientist having his uh, scientist sidebar of shame. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Marie-, Marie Curie flaunts curves as she handles uranium in a lab. <laughs> Look at the spikes on the spectrograph. <laughs>
2: So, Google has said it will stop selling ads based on individuals browsing across multiple websites once they face out third party cookies this year. This is this this is one of those stories. I, I don't know if this has just been sounded to leave in my brain, actually. This.
1: <laughs> um,
2: so, they've said that they're going to push advertisers towards cohort based targeting rather than cookie replacement identifiers, which I think, Peter, you'll correct me if I'm wrong on this. It basically means that they'll sort of group you by. Everybody else on the internet with your own weird browsing habits, rather than specifically <laughs> tracking
3: you. It's what it's this it's what they call flocks, which I can't remember mm. what it stands for, but it's got the word cohort in there.
2: Federated cohort of learnings or something.
3: So the idea is that people with similar interests are grouped together. Uh, so you you're kind of anonymising the targeting. It's not you can't identify an individual. You can only identify groups of like-minded individuals.
2: So, if you're shopping for yachts, you're also quite likely to be <laughs> shopping for expensive champagne and watches as well. So they can target you on that rather than yachts, following you around the the internet forever. Mm. Well, I think that there was this expectation that Google will be phasing out third-party cookies and that would then press their own advantage with the browsers. And Google have actually said, no, we're not. We're not planning to do that. We're trying to work towards something that's benefit everybody, rather than just using this as like a monopoly, monopoly opportunity. Oh, I
3: just that picture there of that winky gift that you. No, know, oh, off of
1: Wandavision. See, yeah. if you're yeah, keeping WandaVision. up with Wandavision, you would know what that's about. Mm. Uh,
3: free business newspaper City AM has topped three million monthly online readers for the first time. That's three times what it did last year. This is an interesting story because these guys got
1: hammered
3: by yeah, the pandemic. Completely ruined. Uh, they. Talked about coming back a couple of times in print uh, when lockdowns eased, but I think, as far as I know, they still haven't come back in print.
1: Nope.
2: Well, um, the lockdown hasn't <laughs> eased.
3: <laughs> no, it's back again. Yeah. Um, so, I think the fact that they've got this traffic spike is really, really cool for them because obviously they had to do a, a serious
2: pivot.
1: There's a complete. I mean, that growth is they- that's got to feel good for them.
2: I think it was 75% UK as well and quite a lot of it was that London market that they were
1: after. Mm, nice. And The Face magazine is launching a dedicated TikTok talent agency. Holy shit, that was hard to say. Uh, they want to underline their position as quote, a leading force in the digital influencer sphere. Uh, this makes sense to me. You know, they've had, we've had, seen News UK launch, what is it, The Fifth, their own influencer agency. So makes sense that they want to sort of get into this space. And The Face, probably one of the best placed organisations to do it.
2: This makes me feel so old. <laughs> and um, well, talking of I... launches, um, Voice of Black America magazine Ebony is relaunching as a digital title and a new ownership this week. So Ebony closed last year following financial difficulties. I think they stopped the print magazine like way back in 2019. Um, so yeah, this is, this is good to see, uh, see some new ownership giving this a bit of a refresh.
3: A new online news service has launched in Wales. Um, <laughs> it's called The National which is interesting because it's from Newsquest, who also published The National in Scotland. Um, The National in Scotland is pro-independence. I'm not sure if The National in Wales is pro-Welsh independence.
1: I mean, what was it? 60% of people in Wales said they were pro-independence in a survey published this week. I think in the same way that... Was it not? Uh, well, in the same way that I think the New European was launched to capitalise on that kind of flag-waving pro-European movement, this to me seems like another example of that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, a news said there was a piece in the BBC where they said that um, Scotland basically had loads of uh, national news titles that were dedicated to Scottish people and they were like, ah, Wales doesn't have one, we're going to launch one. Um, and they've, they've said that they're not um, they're not pursuing a pro independence agenda, but that's not to say that they won't um, nudge that mm. way.
3: <laughs> when the National in Scotland is absolutely pro independence.
1: And finally, Facebook's oversight board is reportedly frustrated with the binary nature of its decisions. So its uh, its members are apparently fed up with the fact that they have to give a sort of straight yes or no answer to questions about you know whether Trump should be allowed back on all this kind of stuff, or rather whether he should have been banned in the first place. And given that these decisions are the precedent on which other ma- moderation calls are going to be made, that is, to me, very understandable because there's no room for nuance there. What is our take? Is this proof that Facebook was only doing this as a bit of a sop?
2: I've got the tiniest violin on the planet.
1: <laughs>
2: oh, we're frustrated because we have to make yes-no decisions. What did you think <laughs> you were being asked to do? You won't be asked to, you know, sort of debate the nuances. Like, you are asked to come to a decision about yes or no on a lot of very difficult
1: issues <laughs> sorry that's just me calling time on facebook
3: uh, i you know okay. I, so how many people's on the board 40 people is it yeah so i think there's a the basis for a brilliant brilliant sweepstake here we just put the names up and you get to pick one who's the first one that says i'm not doing this anymore and, <laughs> and resigns This week I spoke to James Stable, founder and co-CEO of tech recommendation site wearables.com and The Ambient. We had a very honest chat about how the meteoric rise of the business was brought to a crashing halt overnight by an unknown SEO problem. We also spoke about the precarious nature of the affiliate revenues. But first, I asked James how the sites got started.
0: The founder of sites like um... Hot, hot UK Deals and Quidco actually approached uh, Paul, my business partner, um, about launching a wearable tech site. Um, he wanted to uh, get something started. Um, but being those those businesses being in the deals uh, sort of area, that was very much the focus of what he thought would be the, the seed of the idea would be to do something around wearable tech deals. Um, me and Paul had worked together he came to me about doing it with him and then we looked at where we came from in tech journalism and just thought you know deals weren't the way to go but there certainly wasn't enough interest and growth in the wearable area to make a website about it and essentially be an authority in a subject that was very much our sort of tagline in the very early days
3: this was in like 2014 is that right
0: yeah, 2014. So the Apple Watch hadn't launched at that point. It was but very heavily rumoured to be. Um, and there were some smartwatches and obviously Fitbit was well on the rise and um, Jawbone and all these. So there's plenty of interest out there. There's plenty to write about. We thought all oh, the other tech sites out there, are, they're talking about wearables as part of their general tech beat, but there was no one out there really testing them in a deep meaningful way and the idea of being an authority and being experts in this area and this um, segment specifically is what we wanted to do and that's really when where the idea came from and it just really took off you know we started in t- August 2014 by early 2015 we were doing a million readers a month um, and by 2016 we had a high point of 4 million unique users in December 2016 so it really was a rapid rapid rise based on a sort of perfect storm of the right product at the right time. And I guess just, you know, the right people with the right expertise, taking advantage of, of um, our sort of uh, knowledge in SEO and really sort of, yeah, taking it forward.
3: But your background was in tech journalism. You were at Future before.
0: That's it, yeah. did, uh, I think, eight years at Future on different uh, technology magazines and then um, finished um, T3 uh, no, as I'm speakers a editor. Yeah. Um, and I did uh, some iPad stuff with uh, tech radar um, and uh, but yeah that, at, the, at the time of taking the wearable job I was probably going through my sort of fourth um, prospective redundancy yeah a bit of a no-brainer when got offered more money to to go and start something like this and I just felt it was the right thing at the right time.
3: So was that you starting that up with your partner or was did you have funding to start up?
0: We were given the investment to start. It was an individual who's interested and he, um, yeah, he put up the investment. Um, we had a sort of a small share of the business as a kind of um uh, incentive to, to really sort of push ourselves to make it happen.
3: So, from, from wearables uh, in 2016, you got four million visits, yeah. Then you went off to do the ambient as well,
0: yes. So, around that time, we really wanted to expand um and sort of almost prove that we could repeat the trick um and we were doing bits and pieces on the smart home on wearable because we sort of saw this smart tech ecosystem where you might walk into your house and your smartwatch says i'm home connects to the smart heating turns the thermostat up um you know it's that that kind of vision so we just thought we started with the tagline tech for your connected self. And yeah, of course the site's called wearable. We were doing wearables, but we also did the sort of other connected stuff around the home, but it just really wasn't, it seemed like a good idea when we started and it did okay, but then it just really, really makes sense on the site at all. So we launched a second site, which is the ambient. And that is, as I say, Smart tech, um, voice assistants, connected home products, and um, you know that's really a still extremely exciting area and one that's growing all the time.
3: And then the last site you launched was Get Sweat Go.
0: Yeah, so again we wanted to diversify again, and um, Get Sweat Go um, was a sort of personal is a personal passion point of mine. When we started Ambient and Wearable, our bread and butter revenue was affiliate, um, and as still is. A certain extent um so we wanted to do something that wasn't in technology um we wanted a, a technology so um, competitive and just everyone is so seo focused we were you know really finding it hard to uh, we We're you know, swimming as hard as we can just to keep keep up with the competitors so we wanted to do something that was a little bit different so get sweat go um is a sort of sports focused site and the get is about buying the things you need to do your sport and fitness hobbies. And then the go um, element was to try and in the future look to travel um, and a different affiliate areas, really, and different areas of growth where, you know, we could have this sort of product side, which is very much a, you know, bread and butter for us, product recommendation, and then this sort of, you know, the opportunity to splinter off into this travel piece.
3: The three sites that you've got there, how do you see them connected?
0: A couple of things. Um, expertise and authority is the heart of everything we we did and we continue to do even more so now Um, so being a trusted source of information connects all of those in technology it's about explaining things to people and making sure they're making a good decision and i don't see that as any different for any other site we ever launched it's about educating and just being a guide to people who don't have the time or the expertise to make that decision themselves, making sure they're getting good stuff, making sure that they're, you know, happy in their hobbies or, you know, their health and fitness in terms of wearable and get sweat go, the stuff they're buying in their home. Um, yeah. It's just about being a, being a trusted source. That's what, that's what we're all about. And then connected to that is the buying decision. I think you, you know people hear that a lot, but um, you know, if you are, trustworthy or trusted enough to recommend something to somebody then that is one of the key sort of revenue drivers for um for publishing is to take that affiliate revenue where possible offer people the best deal where it's available or provide an easy link to getting something that's independently verified uh, from a trusted source and and then um yeah it's something you can some profit on as well so it's good for everybody
3: i mean your revenue i guess is primarily affiliate e-commerce revenue?
0: It certainly was when we started. We were 80% affiliate-driven, really, Um, so much so we didn't run ads for our first few years at all. We just went on affiliate 100%. That has changed over the years. We were so successful at the beginning that we owned the search, essentially, for all of our niches, so it was easy to pick up loads of readers who were looking to buy probably you yeah, know, finger hovering over the order button on Amazon or another store anyway. Um, and yeah, affiliate was just easy to come by. Amazon have cut the rates uh, over the last year since the pandemic. Uh, despite them making the record profits, um, they're passing less back to publishers and, um, and people recommending. As of March in 2020, we were sending twice as many people to Amazon year on year and earning half the amount so it's been a huge hit luckily we've gone a different way with our our advertising and and that hasn't picked up the slack um we were fortunate enough to get a big boost in traffic and now we can monetize um that traffic quite well so in a way we've we've sort of come out of it unscathed but it's sort of um it's obviously annoying when you look at the balance of revenue that yeah 50 percent more People eyeballs fifty percent less money is uh, that's not good economics whichever way you look at it. Well,
3: that's the that's the kind of plot twist if you like in the in, in your story is that from that high point where you were launching, get set go. Um, I think the way you described it was you you flew as close to the sun as uh, yeah. as yeah. possible without actually flaming out. What what happened?
0: So. 2nd of April, 2019, Um, everything's been going really well um, and coming to work and traffic on both sites is 50 or 60% down on what you would expect many people to be on the site at that time of day. And that's the ambient and um, wearable Get Sweat Go hadn't launched at that point. So obviously that's the, the thing you don't want to see, but there can be loads of reasons for that. So we just sort of uh, sit out for a few days and then it just becomes clear that these people aren't coming back and yeah, our, our site traffic is 60% down. So you start fiddling about and there's loads of, there's lots of red herrings, possibilities, ideas that you go through, um, but um, yeah, you check the rankings and where you were, where we were on page, well, page one, position one, position two, we're now page three, page four on Google. Um, and yeah, it's just a complete SEO wipeout overnight. And this obviously happens to plenty of SEO driven businesses. But, the, the you know, the curious thing was that usually there's a big Google update. Google says we did an update or the SEO community confirms there's been an update. Um, and you've been deemed to not be of sufficient quality to... To deserve your spots and you lose rankings, it's you know it's just the, the way it is. Um, you know there was no update that day, so we're really left scratching our heads, thinking, you know, what's what's happened, and to do for it to happen to, to both of your sites within the business, um, is yeah, it's just uh, we were just we just didn't know where to go with it really, and yeah, we started a long fixing process of fixing um, everything. Um, you know, technical audits, uh, editorial audits. Um, so that's April 2019. Um, you know, by the end of that year, things hadn't picked up. You know, we were writing things. They just weren't ranking at all. Um, we were, you know, you, you write news or features and they it just weren't getting read. Um, the, the sort of what you call your evergreen stuff, the stuff that, you know, you rely on is, yeah, now it's 60, 70% down. Um, you know, you hit sort of hit these critical mass stages as well, where you're just not tipping the the balance in terms of affiliate. So it's not like 50% less readers is 50% less affiliate revenue. It's more like 70, 80% Mm -hmm. less revenue. Um, And yeah, it's just um, sort of essentially losing money hand over fist. So we had uh, Get Sweat Go in the Works. I had an editor Um, and we just, we've always prided ourselves on hiring great people and and you know offering them you know very competitive and we we always do right by our staff and we're a very close-knit team Um, but by the end of that year we were losing money to the to the point where yeah they just we just couldn't continue so it was um we had to give notice on the office and pretty much all the staff had to be made redundant we kept a couple but by february the next um year february 2020 yeah the, the last couple had to had to be laid off as well as so it was uh back to how it started with just me and paul
3: how many people did you have at the peak
0: it had seven plus uh myself and paul um mm. and that was in london and we had uh two in san francisco and you know count them all as as friends um as well as uh uh, people who you people who we'd worked with through the years who we really rated and you know they were sort of a dream team for us we were going out there and getting people that we wanted because we were doing good things successful we offered good money and um where we could and uh yeah to sit those people down um look them in the eye and say we can't keep you on was just well yeah you can imagine how how, how painful it was. You mentioned I said that we flew so close to the sun. It really was. I think we started to recover in March twenty twenty, and the rate cut for Amazon was April May. Um, <laughs> had we have suffered that rate cut under uh, and the loss of revenue on the traffic and revenue we were making in February, we wouldn't be uh, functioning today. That's mm. we were probably within eight weeks of. Of really closing down because we just wouldn't have been able to function um, on that revenue fifty percent less uh, affiliate. Um, mm. uh, our um, ads uh, supplier uh, went into administration um, and looked like we weren't going to get we weren't going to get three months of ad revenue anyway. Uh, yeah, it was just it was just so close. And then this is
3: all just as the pandemic really yeah, just kicks as, off.
0: Yeah. Yeah, just the pandemic is kicking off. Yeah, sort of February twenty twenty into March twenty twenty, and perhaps ironically, it was the the pandemic possibly that was part of the recovery in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, we 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 fixed everything technically.
3: Did you ever figure out what actually had happened?
0: No, no. I think anyone who's any search based business that's gone through this stuff, and absolutely every search based business probably gone through something like this. Um, to a certain extent, we went through the technical aspects of it, um, and then we really had to look at ourselves and what we were doing, and really go back to to that exp- that expertise and and trust. What they call EAT now is one of the biggest currencies going in SEO: expertise, authority, and trust. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think when the pandemic hit, Google upped the power of authority and expertise in in response to the pandemic trying to get good information out there and i think it was almost what part of our recovery was that we was although whatever caused this problem was lurking um perhaps fixed um, at least we had this expertise and authority thing going for us and i think it's just dialed up around march 2020 and that was a massive part of this sort of snowball effect of recovery because it wasn't like we came into work on uh, on in sort of March 2020 and everything was just back to how it was in March 2019. Just, a, it was a slow, slow recovery. You sort of started to see things getting red, things jumping um, into the most red and getting into the top stories spots and this Google Discover and it just sort of, everything just kind of came back to life over a period of sort of five or six weeks. But um, yeah, I certainly think the dial-up of authority and trust really, really sort of effectively started that process of recovery.
3: I guess the boom in home shopping, because it was the only kind of shopping anyone could do, also made a difference.
0: I think so. Yeah. Um definitely. And a lot of people say, oh, it'd be the it would be the focus on personal health and fitness um that drove part of that recovery as well, that people were working out at home and they wanted a watch or or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. They were thinking about their activity and making sure they were getting enough exercise in lockdown so they want smartwatches, Apple watches, whatever. And yeah, certainly the interest level was there that really um, really helped us. But I mean, you could see organically that the, pay, the search pages were, we were back kind of thing. That was what, it wasn't just more a bigger pool of people Coming, mm, who were yeah. essentially filtering onto the site, we we could look at the first page of Google and see if we were back. It wasn't just a general interest or a captive audience, although that did certainly make a little bit of a difference. But um, whatever was causing us to be demoted was we were sort of freed from the shackles, as it were, and <laughs> um, and we were able to, to to sort of almost reclaim spots that, that had been lost, which is you know really pleasing.
3: Is search still the sort of most important driver for your business?
0: Oh, Oh, one hundred percent. Yeah, I mean we're we're sort of a ninety percent search business, and I don't think anyone who in media really, bar some some obvious exceptions, if you want scale, and that's really the only way to one of the key ways to monetize still. Um, you know, it's the, it's the the only really way to scale is to is to be present like that. Yeah, you can have if you've got a great a great brand and get people direct, then then great. And obviously there's certain brands out there who use social, but for huge swathes of the media landscape, you know, search is, is what drives people to you. And, and you are sort of, in a way, beholden to the whims of the algorithm.
3: Do you worry that it could happen again?
0: Yeah, every day. Things like the, um, the big freeze over in the US, I think had a big impact on search tra- traffic that week. Um, when you get sort of the, the fallout from the last weeks of the Trump administration, yeah, hugely affects traffic. People are too busy looking at other stuff to hmm. go and do their smartwatch shopping. Um, and um, yeah, it has an effect. And you look and the date that you think, oh, where is everyone? <laughs> and then uh, sort of start checking the SEO sites has there been an update? Um, we have all these, you know, look, loads of paper tools to tell us, um, you know, what, whether we're up or down. Um, and we have been negatively affected by by changes in the algorithm since. There's one in December 2020 that certainly wasn't wasn't positive for us, but you keep driving forward with your technical development, your know, editorial development, ideas, um, improvement, you know, you just it's part of just the, the ebb and flow of things. We can handle that, that's no problem. But uh, to sort of be wiped out like that, yeah, it's scary. And um, yeah, it could happen again. It could happen to us tomorrow. And I think it could happen to any search business tomorrow, really. You've just got to keep doing things right and um, and diversify as much as possible. And yeah, it's tough.
3: How does that work for you guys? Who's the expert in what?
0: It's just the two of us. We still use experts. Just we don't. They're not exclusively our experts anymore. Yeah, um, yeah. But uh, you know, the, again, it comes back to this this EAT um, sort of metric. Well, it's not a, it's not a measurable metric, but this this idea of expertise, authority, and trust. We know those. We, we use. We want to use people who have proven to be experts even if they write for other places that in fact helps us to a certain extent because they're deemed as more of an expert because they're writing about wearables and smart home in more places so yeah we still strive to go out there and get the best people it's just that we now do that freelance rather than having them 100% of the time and and from a business perspective that it's actually probably beneficial to us because we're carrying less yeah. weight as a business um, we're more agile and Yeah, part of the big problem with where we were when we hit this huge upset in 2019 is we had an office, we had a big staff, and that made us heavy and and unable to weather the storm, so we we won't be caught like that again.
3: Having come through what you've come through, what would your advice be to an independent publisher that was trying to survive?
0: Um, That is difficult. I mean, it's obviously diversify, Obviously this is general general uh, common sense really. But in terms of where we were, any business that looks like ours, we started the business on expertise and authority. And I do believe that's like the biggest currency going in search and SEO now. So if you're a small publisher, I'd say you really have to use your niche, be great at, at what you do and and really yeah, really drill down on, on that expertise and just give give Google a reason to list you amongst the probably the big players the incumbents the nationals the you know we have to fight against the behemoths of tech but then also the the, yeah, the newspapers the guardian yeah, they're all just so aggressive seo wise and have such huge teams but we we hold our own because we're doing this um, you know in depth no stone uncovered and and just going doing those hard yards that they just don't have the time to, to go into because we have this small sort of structure um, me and Paul, we're the only two people in the business. So we're SEO, advertising, monetization, we're development, we're, you know, every part of the business is part of, you know, we, are we're central to, and I think any business or, or publisher, um, just make sure that whoever's at the sort of leadership level of your, of your business really make sure that they are over everything and and see it as a big picture and then put and have all those parts of the business functioning as one
3: we ask everyone what's the one piece of media they would recommend to, to our listeners
0: it's a little bit of a left field one and it's really boring um but um i would anyone who's in our area i would say if a search-based business uh, go and print out and read the quality raters guidelines that uh, google publishes they use manual humans to spot check sites um, to train the algorithm as it were to determine quality and the guidelines for those people are publicly available online Um, and it really goes into ascertaining what good quality looks like while it's uh, certainly not a particularly exciting read it's certainly everything you need to know in there.
1: So thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of Media Voices. Please do tell anybody who you think might like a weekly media news roundup to listen to. And head over to our Ko-Fi page, which is ko-fi.com slash Media Voices, if you want to throw us some money to help cover our operating costs. As Esther mentioned in the newsletter this week, we are perilously close to covering our costs for the month.
3: If you're desperate for more Media Voices content, then sign up to our daily newsletter. which contains four of the most important media stories every day, as created by one of the Media Voices team. And, of course, there's a link to
1: the latest podcast episodes. There's been some exciting developments for this year's Publisher Podcast Awards this week as we finally started tallying all the final scores. Um, but we're not quite ready to announce that yet. But if you do want to see who's potentially up for an award, you can head across to publisherpodcastawards.com to check out those shortlists. You can also buy tickets. We're trialing a pay-what-you-want system this year, so please do make it worth our while. But until next week, when we'll be back with a fantastic guest and another tour through all the news and the views from the media world over the next week, thank you very much for listening, and stay safe.
3: Bye-bye.